Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature how are you doing there it's david welcome to the david mcwilliams podcast which every week tries to make economics less jargony more comprehensible and ultimately i hope more relevant now this week we have a fascinating area to discuss, which is the role of central banks, the fact that they're all cutting interest rates right now. Why are they doing that? Whether or not the global economy is going into a recession or whether something else is going on. And that's the link between disruptive technology, Silicon Valley and deflation. And this is forcing down prices and ultimately this is changing the way the global economy works. So that's our topic. Is technology changing the way the global economy works? Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. I'm always joined, as you guys know, by my old mate John, John Davis. How are you, man? Very good, Mac. How are you? I see you're, <laughs> as the summer goes on, you're getting a little bit more raggedy. You're letting yourself go. <laughs> I think, I'm I letting think, myself go. I think JM was saying that you look more like uh, Boris Johnson every day. A redhead Boris Johnson. Ah, now here. There's, <laughs> there's no reason for that. There's no call for that at all. <laughs> anyway, Mac, let's get into it now. I read your article the other day, and I see in all the news... This week, the big thing is the Fed has reduced its interest rates, along with a load of other central banks. And I'm kind of what's the big deal? What's that all about? And why now? OK, well, why now is because the global economy looks to be slowing down quite quickly, having had a long period of economic expansion all across the globe, from the United States to Europe to the United Kingdom. There is, and of course, a little bit in Asia as well, there's evidence that the economy is slowing down. So the central bankers are reacting uh, to that. And what the central bankers tend to do, John, is they tend to use interest rates as their main economic weapon. So right. when the economy begins to slow down, they cut interest rates. The objective of cutting interest rates 
is that the lower interest rates will do two things. One is they will reduce the cost of capital, so they will coax people to invest. And number two, they will reduce the returns to savings, so the people who had savings will say, you know what, I'm not going to save today. I'm going to spend today because the return on savings is so low. And when I say people, I'm talking people and companies in the private sector. So that's the main objective of cutting interest rates. It's to actually coax people to spend rather than save, and it's to coax people to borrow rather than save. So when central banks see the economy turning down, what they tend to do is cut interest rates. The reason this week is interesting, John, is because central banks across the world are cutting interest rates. Last week, it was the United States, India, Thailand, New Zealand. There is a big talk about the ECB reducing rates as well. And also, what is happening is something called the yield curve is inverting. Now, that's real jargon, and I'll explain that to you. You might have read that? that as well. So the yield curve is the difference between short-term interest rates, which are interest rates that are charged for lending money for three months, vis-a-vis long-term interest rates, which are broadly taken as interest rates charged lending money for 10 years. So for example, if the Irish government were to go out and borrow tomorrow, it wouldn't borrow money for three months, it would borrow money for 10 years. And the reason it borrows money for 10 years is it wants the certainty that it doesn't have to pay all that money back for 10 years so it can build roads and Hospitals yeah, and that what makes have sense. you. Okay. So the difference between the three month interest rate and the 10 year interest rate is called the yield curve. Now, typically, John, what should happen is the following if you lend money for the long term, the interest rate that you get should be higher than if you borrow money for the short term. And the reason is the following like, let's say, for example, you came to me and you said, uh, Mac, give us 100 grand. I'll give it back to you in 10 years. And you won't see me for 10 years, but I promise I'll give it back to you. Yeah, yeah. You would expect me to charge a higher rate of interest because you're taking the money for longer than if you said to me, listen, when you give us 100 grand, if I have that, uh, and I'll give it back to you tomorrow. So short-term interest rates should be lower than long-term interest rates because the period of time that the money is given to the borrower is much, much shorter and short-term interest rates. And therefore, the risk that you won't pay is much lower. Right. Do you get that? Yeah, I do. Okay, so uh, apart from being able to do a great job on my man shed with 100 grand, (laughs) what's going on with the yield curve? Like, Explain this inversion thing a little bit more to me so I understand it. Okay, so for example, so if you take the idea that interest rates should be higher in the long term than in the short term because the risk that you don't pay back is amplified because you have the money for longer, number one. Yeah. And then there's a thing called opportunity cost. If I give you the money, I can't give it to somebody else. So I better also, in my head, figure out that you're a better bet. And if I'm worried that you're not a better bet, I'll charge you more interest. So those two things tend to drive the notion that long-term interest rates are higher than short-term interest rates. Now, the yield curve, therefore, should be what they call in the business upward sloping. Now, that means that... There should be an upward slope. Let's say, for example, short-term interest rates were 1%. Then long-term interest rates should be maybe 3 or 4%. And the, the curve slopes upwards as you go from three months to 10 sure. years. So that's called the upward sloping yield curve. And yep. that's kind of normal. That's what you'd expect yeah, that makes sense. in normal yep. times. Therefore, the long-term interest rate 
is only the short-term interest rate plus a risk premium. And that risk premium is whether you pay me the money back. So that is what normal conditions should be. However, right now, something weird is happening. And the yield curve is inverting. And that means that short-term interest rates are now higher than long-term interest rates. Now, this is a very strange situation because it means that investors and financial markets believe one of two things. One is there's a recession coming yeah, and interest rates in the future will be lower than they are today. And the reason a recession would signal interest rates in the future being lower than they are today is that during a recession, demand collapses, people don't want to borrow, banks don't want to lend, and interest rates naturally fall in a recession. So if the world thinks a recession is coming, there will be this inversion. So short-term interest rates will be for a little while higher than long-term interest rates. This has traditionally signaled recession in all financial markets, this inversion of the yield curve. And this is what's going on right now. Right. Like that begs the question, why do they believe a recession is coming? Like why, what's going on with the slowdown? Why is that happening? Okay, well, basically, economies always follow what they call the business cycle, the economic cycle. And I think the economic cycle is nothing more than human nature. So we tend to get giddy at the beginning of an economic cycle, and we tend to believe our own propaganda, and we tend to overinvest and overconsume and overborrow and overspend, because we believe the future is going to be better than today. Right. And then at a certain moment, a certain moment, that optimism, turns into pe- pessimism and worries about the future. And every and basically because the economy is nothing more than a herd and people tend to believe what the next person says to them, what happens is the herd get effervescently optimistic and that drives the economy upwards. And then at a certain period, nobody's really too sure what it is. The herd becomes pessimistic. Now that could be an event like Brexit. It could be an event like a war in the Middle East. It could be a, a big event. But sometimes there's no event. It's just the natural ebb and flow of the economic and cycle. And is that what happened in 2008? More or less. Well, in 2008, the trigger, and this is the interesting thing, the trigger in 2008 was the subprime crisis in the United States, yeah. which was over-lending and over-borrowing to people who never had any intention of paying money back. That was what's right. called the liar loans phenomenon. The liar loans were you basically, as the lender give me a piece of paper and say, David McWilliams, you want to buy this house? Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, You say you have an income of 100,000 euros. We know you're lying. You know you're lying. But we don't care because we're getting paid commission lending you the money. There's a whole phenomenon called liar loans. And those liar loans were the bedrock, so to speak, of the subprime market. That went belly up as people stopped paying back. And ultimately then the entire system, which was leveraged together, by various different loans, began to collapse. That's the 2008 idea. Now, yeah. the reason people are worried now is because in 2008, John, everyone says, oh, yeah, well, in 2008, there was so much debt in the world that ultimately it was the debt that began to undermine the economic edifice. And once debts stopped getting paid... So, so that was the end of that particular economic cycle. So we started again pretty much from scratch, yeah. 2009 onwards. Right. Had to rebuild the whole economy. Yes. And in 2009, with this thing called quantitative easing, which is, if you think about the logic, right? In 2008, 
the world economy came close to collapse because there was too much debt. Yeah. In 2009, the central banks decided to rebuild the global economy with even more debt. So I'll give you the figures now, okay? Because yeah. there's yeah. now much more debt in the world than there was in 2008. So debt levels at the moment stand at about $244 trillion. Okay, that's Jesus about three Christ. times the size. That's about the size, three times the size of global GDP. It's about, the precise figure, it's about 311% of global GDP. The debts have ballooned over the last decade or two. But look, since, for example, the financial crisis, take a, go back to 2000, it was 84 trillion. It was 173 trillion in 2008, and now it's 244 trillion. So what you can see is that debt levels have increased dramatically over the last 10 years. And that explains a lot of the economic boom of the last 10 years. Because when you incur debt, the economy tends to grow because you're throwing more and more and more money at the economy. And you'll notice one thing, John, in economics is that when times are good, borrowings are called credit because it kind of sounds good. And then when times are bad, that same borrowing suddenly turns into debt. So if you call it debt, what we're looking at is massive amounts of new debt have been taken on in the last 10 years. That scares the central banks. This just seems like such a crazy system. So we come to the end of a natural economic cycle with a big crash in 2008. We kick things off again, and it appears that we haven't really learned a huge amount. So we, like Einstein says, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and ex expect a different result, it's the definition of stupidity. And while we might have a short-term boom, as we have done, as you just described in the last while, we're going to inevitably end up in the same position again. And it could even be worse. Is that, am I missing well, something? No, you're not missing something. John, the difference now is different people have the debt. So in the last huge upswing, which was largely driven by the United States construction sector, home building sector, and domestic housing sector, and of course the Irish, and of course the British, we all know that, that basically many of the developed nations went on a debt splurge to finance housing in yeah. the period 2000 to 2008. Okay. This debt splurge has been different in the sense that the nations and the individuals taking on the debt are quite different. So the complexion has changed dramatically. To give you a, a figure, 40% of the new debt incurred in the last 10 years has been taken on by Chinese companies and Chinese individuals. Wow. Now, we know that we spoke, we spoke about the Chinese yep. in Africa a couple of weeks ago, but also what's happening internally in China has been this extraordinary need in China to keep the economy going in order to absorb all these millions and millions of agricultural workers who are coming from rural and middle China to the sea side of China, the China Sea, to the big cities, to create this Chinese unbelievable economic boom. But in order to keep that going, the Chinese have had to incur debt internally to generate the domestic demand, to house all these people, to pay all these people, etc., so a lot of the debt that has been incurred is not only incurred in China, but in other what's called emerging markets. The major ones being Brazil, Turkey, 
South Africa, they're the three big ones, okay? They've taken on a huge amount of debt, but also you see countries like India taking on debt. And again, an interesting thing, John, is one of the observations over the last 10 or 15 years has been that as societies become more middle class, they incur more debts because the banking system becomes much more aggressive within those societies. The banking system encourages people who really had no debts in the past to incur lots and lots of debts. So in a recent trip to India, I was really amazed, John, at the extraordinary presence of the Indian banking system on ads and on online and newspapers and everything. And it kind of reminded me of Ireland in 2005. So as countries become slightly richer, and this goes for Brazil and South Africa and India and, of course, China, what you get is you hear this extraordinary uh, presence of banks coming in and, in a way, feeding the beast. And how do you feed the beast? You feed the beast with more and more debt. And that has been a phenomenon of the global economy over the last couple of years. And that is the beast over which central banks are trying to exert control. And in my opinion, they're doing a reasonably good job because the societies are changing so rapidly. But it doesn't mean that we're not without massive bubbles in certain sectors and we know where these lead to. So all that is the background noise to the quick reduction in interest rates we've seen over the last couple of weeks and days, because I think the central banks are beginning to panic a little bit. Right. The Because you also spoke about, in your article, about the threat of deflation. Can you explain that yeah. one to me? Okay. So deflation is when prices start to fall. Now, deflation in and of itself is not really a massive problem, but deflation, when there's huge amounts of debt, is a massive problem because if prices are falling but debts are not falling, it means that people and companies, when I say prices, we're talking prices and wages are falling, right? Yes. It means that people and companies have to work much harder to pay the same existing debt as they had to work two or three years ago. So the debt burden rises dramatically as prices fall. Do you get that idea? I do, yeah, and through no fault of their own. Through their own fault of their own. So, for example, uh, and this is what uh, a guy, if you're really interested in this, uh, and I know, John, you're going to be reading (laughs) this, called Irving Fisher. Oh, yeah. wrote a seminal seminal paper in 1934 called Debt Deflation and Debt Dynamics. And it's a really amazing short economic paper that explains what happens in a country. He was referring to the United States in the Great Depression when you get deflation with outstanding debts. Deflation with outstanding debts means it's almost impossible to pay those debts back. It means it's almost 100% sure that there will be significant debt defaults. And when debts are defaulted, the banks that lend those debts or those banks that lent this money in the first place tend to go out of business. It's a very interesting paper. So deflation is a serious problem when there's loads of debts. And this is what the central banks are worried about. They've seen, oh my God, the amount of debt out there has increased dramatically. The yield curve is telling me that we're either going into a recession or that prices are going to fall in the future. If prices fall in the future, that's deflation in the future. That means we're going to get a massive, massive debt restructuring. That means we're going to get massive, massive defaults. And that means the global economy is going to go into a massive, massive tailspin. 
So that's why they're panicking right now. It's that combination of deflation and debt. Now, the reason deflation is a problem is the following, John. If prices start to fall, what happens in your head as an individual is the following. You think, okay, if prices are falling, it means... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. What I want to buy today is going to be cheaper in three weeks' time, or a month's time, or a year's time. Yeah. So rather than spending today, I postpone my spending because I think the bargain is next year, right? So if everybody thinks the bargain is next year, nobody spends today. Yeah. If nobody spends today, that absolutely ensures that prices are going to fall, and therefore prices become self-reinforcing on the downside. And this is the major, major fear that central banks have, that deflation becomes ingrained. People say, well, you know what? I'm not going to spend on a car today because the car is going to cost less in a year's time. And you get a freezing of spending right now. And ultimately, then the whole thing becomes what you would call self-prophesizing. Right. So, so the answer to that then is, is the central banks are trying to create inflation. Precisely. By slashing the interest rates. Exactly. OK, so can you explain the upshot of that then for me? Okay, so again, traditionally, you know, I started my career as an economist in the central bank. It was the only place in Ireland you could actually work as an economist back in the old days. And it was really very interesting. So I spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about this and studying it. I seem to remember that you used to knock off at about four o'clock. So you didn't spend that long there. I used to, well, it was the Irish public sector, you know, don't knock it. Don't knock it till you tried it. Don't knock it till you tried it. No, it was great. There was a small uh, cinema which was knocked down, I think, last year or the year before. Um, What was it called? It was just there beside Pier Street Garda Station. Uh, And it used to show movies at quarter past four in the afternoon. Yeah. So I was a regular uh, at quarter past four in the... (laughs) Anyway, so the central bank's big fear right now is this deflation in a world of high debt because deflation and high debt 
means you're almost sure that you'll get significant debt defaults. And ultimately, what happens in a debt default situation has happened in the Great Depression is the thing becomes self-prophesizing and self-fulfilling. So what they do is they say, okay, let's cut interest rates now. We will cut interest rates now because traditionally this coaxes people to spend a little bit more, to save a little bit less. This will ultimately push the economy forward. As we push the economy forward, unemployment falls to a level where there's not enough workers around. Workers can then say, you know what, I'll go out to work tomorrow, but you've got to pay me more. You get a little bit of wage and inflation. Wage inflation goes up a wee bit. Then as companies see wage inflation going up, they say, well, I can increase my prices a little bit. And you get a tick up of prices. And ultimately, the whole thing rebalances at a higher level of inflation. That's what they're right. hoping. Traditionally, sense. this is yeah, called, John, sense. traditionally, this is called the Phillips curve. Okay. Okay. And this is what dominated central banking thinking for a long, long time. It means there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. If a country wants low unemployment, it probably has to tolerate higher levels of inflation. And if a country wants lower levels of inflation, it probably has to have higher levels of unemployment. So there was a relationship between unemployment and inflation. So you want unemployment at 2%, let's say inflation has to be 6 That's That was the idea of the Phillips curve. And it wasn't a theory. It was just an observation of data that held for a long, long time. Okay. However, right now in the United States, what you're seeing is something unusual. And this is, I think, quite interesting. It is that American unemployment has rarely been lower. And yet American wages are not rising. In fact, wage inflation has also rarely been more subdued. So what you're getting is you're getting really low levels of unemployment and really low levels of inflation, which is not what the theory suggests. This is the interesting thing. So therefore, we have to think, well, is there something else going on that's affecting the rate of inflation? And this, I believe, is something where central bankers might be a little bit confused. And it is the following, that very low levels of interest rates, which traditionally push inflation upwards, might actually be pushing inflation downwards. And here's the mechanism, right? So very low levels of interest rates encourage investors to invest in technologies that don't necessarily generate a return for many, many years. And the reason is the following. If your cost of capital, which is your rate of interest, falls to almost zero, this means that your cost of investing falls to almost zero. This means you can tolerate having no income for your investment for a long, long time. And this leads to the sort of behavior which I call jackpot investing, which is that you invest with the idea in your head of almost winning the lottery. And therefore, and the reason you do this is there's no cost of capital today. So then think of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is full of companies that promise amazing, amazing riches tomorrow with no income today. They can only function if the cost of capital is zero. Because if the cost of capital rises, then investors will say, well, hold on, I love your idea, man, but you've got to pay me something today for the pleasure of taking a risk. Okay. This is the environment where companies, will take Uber as an example, are able to absorb in huge amounts of capital, promise massive rewards in the future, but generate almost nothing bar losses right now. 
And then what does that do to inflation? This is the interesting thing. All these technology companies are based on the idea of making production more efficient. More efficient only means reducing cost. That's all it means. Reducing the inputs today to generate outputs tomorrow. So consequently, take Uber. The promise of Uber is that it will destroy all transport competition at some stage in the future. And how does it do this? It does this by massively reducing the cost of transport today to us. Then you've got to say, well, who's paying for that? And this is when, when you hear about you know, Uber lost 10 billion or 3 billion over a period of time, that yeah. means Uber's investors are losing money. Right. Why are they losing money? Because Uber is losing money. Why is it losing money? Because in actual fact, it's actually charging less than it costs it to produce taxi fares. Okay, that, that's why it's losing money. Yeah. So the interesting thing is Uber's investors are subsidizing consumers, people who take Uber, and they're doing that now because they will feel that they can tolerate this for the next four or five years until Uber wins that, becomes a number one, eliminates all the competition, and then they can jack up prices again. And th- but then that's going to be huge inflation again. So what are, the, what are the central banks going to do then with that inflation? Well, this is what I'm thinking. If you look at across all sorts of technologies, the essential idea is that as long as investors are willing to tolerate no return, it means those technologies, which are largely based on eliminating the middleman, yeah. those technologies can screw existing producers, give a massive benefit to existing consumers, but at some stage in the future will recoup their losses by jacking up prices in the future. Payback time. That's payback time. But as long as that is pushed out for another three or four or five years then everything will look hunky-dory. So the link is really interesting, John. The link, therefore, is in the past, central bankers thought that reducing interest rates would generate inflation. But what I'm saying now is because of huge technological change, reducing interest rates now increases the amount of money that goes into deflationary disruptive technology. I'm using Uber as an example. You can use any other example you want. And in actual fact, reducing interest rates is causing deflation, not inflation. And that's why the central bankers are confused. It's a brave new world. And it's new because it hasn't happened for the last couple of decades. But if you look back historically, you'll see there's been long periods where this thing happened. But we we tend to think if it didn't happen in the last 10 years, it's never happened. Yeah. That's, again, human nature. But so if is, you look at... Is, is there an example of, of when it happened before then? Yeah. Go on, tell us. <laughs> the period in global history between 1860 and 1914 was a period of ongoing global deflation. Okay. That prices fell and fell. And then when they fell to a certain very low level, they didn't recover. Now, the reason was twofold. And those two reasons exist today. The first reason was massive technological disruption. Electricity being a great example. Penicillin being a great example. Refrigeration, which I believe was probably the biggest and most disruptive of all technologies, a great example. So that's on the technological side. And the other side was huge new parts of the world opened up 
for production, mainly agricultural production, which had never opened up before. The Midwest of the United States, linked by the canal system, which was built by Irish navvies. So all the canal system in the United States was built between the 1840s and 1870s. What was the whole idea? The whole idea was to connect the Great Lakes with canals so you could get agricultural product out of the Midwest, where it was costing a fraction of what it was costing in Europe, through the Great Lakes, through the canal system, out to New York and Boston and Philadelphia, but New York and Boston in the main, and then out to Europe. Right. So the equivalent today is China and India opening up to manufacturing. That is exactly the same as, for example, the Midwest of America opening up to wheat, Well, it was actually corn was the main output there. And the other huge shock to the system in that period was the opening up of Latin America and particularly Argentinian beef. And Argentinian beef opened up in the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s. But the problem was until an innovation in what were called refrigerated ships, which were basically floating fridges, until floating fridges arrived, you couldn't get the beef from Argentina to Europe in time before it went off. Sure, And consequently, it was only after... So it's that great combination of an opening up of a new market, which hadn't existed before, plus the innovation, which delivers the product to an old market, and that totally disrupts the old market and changes the way the old market operates. Now, if you want to think about what happened in the case of Ireland, think about what happened in Ireland. Yes, the famine happened in the 1840s and 1850s, but Irish emigration continued rapidly between 1850, 1860 to 1920 because the return to Irish agriculture fell, because prices fell, because farmers lost their income and they continued to leave the land in great numbers. The same thing happened in Germany, the same thing happened in Sweden, same thing happened in Italy, same thing happened here in Croatia, same thing happened all around Europe. Because stuff coming in from Argentina was so much cheaper. Much cheaper. And so therefore that that affects the global price of agriculture. And that affects, therefore, the global price of land. Yeah. And as the global price, because the output, the, the, the return to land was falling, so that forces people off the land into urban areas. Yeah. And I believe that once these huge amounts of rural people came into urban areas and rural people in Europe came into urban areas in Europe and emigrated to the United States, okay, so that was the safety valve, But in Europe, you've got this massive, massive increase in the urban population. You get a massive increase in the urban working class, the industrial class. And then you get a massive increase in new philosophies, new ideas like Marxism, because that is a unifying ideology for these displaced people. Right. And the original mechanism was technology and innovation. And I, again, I believe that a combination of building canals in America but much more importantly, refrigeration being the innovation, changed the world dramatically. And the world never, ever was the same again after this innovation. And the most important thing is, John, with respect to our conversation, the innovation was deflationary. It massively reduced the costs of inputs and the cost of production. And the cost of production was then being made much cheaper by the emergence of electricity, because electricity allowed huge manufacturing and an industrial change driven by a new energy. And that new energy was cheap. And new energy, energy is a cost, agriculture is a cost. And these all, these all changed in the late 19th century. And I think created the modern world, the world 
we live in. Now, if you go back to today, you're seeing the same type of massive social, economic and industrial change coming from clearly the big innovation being the internet, being the World Wide Web, etc., and all the various offshoots of that, which are changing business models as we speak. The, the one I'm using now is Uber, but you can use any, any number of them. Sure, yeah. Amazon or any of them. Yeah. So, it's a, so, it's a, so it's a huge change in the way the world works. And of course, the central bankers, I believe, are still living with a 20th century mindset, which is not necessarily useful in the 21st century, because the 21st century is a much more innovative period. And that innovation is, calling, is causing deflation right now. And that's what I think is going on. Okay, so it, in that also begs the question then, if the central banks and the banking system is out of date, do we need to look at an alternative system? Like, is there an alternative system? Like, do we, do we go back to something similar to the gold standard or some other commodity standard? And if, we, if there is an alternative, like, what would that look like? Well, I think, uh, I think there's a huge amount of people who are thinking deeply about this, who feel that the present monetary system is really a banking system rather than an economic system. So consequently, as I said, when countries become more and more middle class and become richer, the banks get in there and begin to incur huge amounts of leverage and debt, forcing people or at least coaxing people to spend more. And ultimately, what you have is this awful situation where as countries get richer, they become much more indebted. And clearly then debt makes the whole system incredibly fragile. And as we saw in Ireland, between 2000 and 2008, once a society gets into debt, it's almost inevitable that there ends up being a massive crash. So take that and then think, okay, what are the practical alternatives right now? There's a lot of people, particularly in the United States, who believe you should go back to the gold standard. But the problem with the gold standard, there's only a finite amount of gold. So that means there's only going to be a finite amount of money. So that means, for example, when something like the population increases, the amount of money per head has to decrease because you can't increase the amount of money because it's fixed to gold. So consequently, something like the gold standard, I would think would be very regressive, hyper-deflationary, and ultimately, I don't think, would reflect the modern economy. The other thing then is to think, because we're so obsessed with GDP as an indicator of progress, Is it actually an indicator of progress? Could there be more environmental targeting, for example, to link economic growth to the finite resource that is the planet? Because ultimately we know the one thing we can't expand is the planet. You can expand wealth, you can expand GDP, you can expand productivity, but you actually can't expand this beautiful little thing we live on called the planet Earth. And I do think that over time, John, economics will have to become much more open to an absorbing of environmental ideas, lifestyle ideas, and indicators of human welfare, which are not measured by wealth and money and products and status. That's very clear. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content, which you can access via Patreon. What you have in Venezuela is, in essence, a narco-terrorist state. You have a state that has basically strangled all private enterprise, 
strangled all, you know, international relationships apart from a few countries like China and Russia and so on. Activities. In Cuba, we'll talk about Cuba as yes, well. Yes, as well. And you, and you have relations in Venezuela. Mm, yeah, oh yes, lots. And, you know, this, the government, in starting with Chavez and now with Maduro, has, has ruined the economy in order to make people dependent on the state, hungry, so they can't go out and protest because they're busy trying to figure out how to feed themselves and their children for the next day. And so it is a state that has reduced people to abject poverty, and this is a country with the highest level of crude oil reserves in the world, as we know, reduce people to abject poverty and desperation in order to control them and manipulate them and keep them oppressed. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.